You're listening to The Itch, a podcast exploring all things allergy, asthma, and immunology. I'm your co-host, Courtney, a real-life allergy, asthma, and eczema girl. And I'm your second host, Dr. Payal Gupta, a board-certified allergy, asthma, and immunology doctor. Courtney and I hope to balance each other out so that we get you all the information that you want and need about allergies, asthma, and immunology. We've briefly touched on disparities in food allergy and asthma on this podcast, first in our asthma deep dive and in our episode with Adina and Thomas, the founders of Elijah's Echo. Today, we're exploring what disparities in food allergies look like. We're joined by Emily Brown, the founder of Food Equality Initiative. Emily opens up about her personal experience of food allergy and food insecurity. She shares how this not only impacted her family, but how it impacts so many other families and what she's doing to make sure that every food allergy person gets safe and healthy food. As a Canadian living in Berlin, I found this interview really eye-opening and was amazed at how little I knew of the struggles families go through to get food on the table and the added burden to get safe food on the table, which in turn impacts so many other aspects of their lives. So without further ado, I bring you our interview with Emily Brown. Thank you so much, Emily, for being here with us today. We're really excited to talk about your organization and learn more about everything that you're doing with the Food Equality Initiative. And so our first question, of course, is always tell us more about you and what motivated you to start your organization. Yeah, so I am you know, a wife, a mother, a friend have so many roles, right? But really what led me to starting the organization is my own personal experience, my family's experience with food allergies and food insecurity and how those two worlds collided. So my oldest daughter, who is now eight, but at the the age of one, she had a severe reaction to peanuts. And as you can imagine, that was very terrifying. And so We quickly realized after further testing that she was not only allergic to peanuts, but that she was also allergic to milk, eggs, wheat, soy, and then later she would develop tree nut allergy. And so as you can imagine, that was very overwhelming for our family, that initial diagnosis. On one hand, we were, you know, happy to finally have a clear answer to what was going on. I mean, she had eczema as a child. I I think I had like a small fortune in creams <laughs> that were not working. <laughs> and you know, at six months, she had blood in her stool. And so our pediatrician was like, well, that could be a sign of a dairy allergy, but don't take the dairy out of your diet yet. You know, it's like hindsight is twenty twenty. So I was happy to finally kind of fully understand what was going on because my daughter was pretty much sick the entire first year of her life. She didn't sleep well. She was unhappy and it was very, very stressful. And I was a first time mom. And when I expressed a need for help for my own mom, she was like, you were never like that. (laughs) So, you know, she couldn't really help me either. And so it was, it was hard. That first year was hard. And so I like to tell people that it was the perfect storm. You know, my, my husband is a social worker and we had worked really hard and 
saved so that I could stay home that first year because breastfeeding was really important to me. And I know that you can breastfeed and go to work at the same time, but it, it is difficult. And so I, I made a decision to stay home that first year and I was going to go back to work. And I was working as a preschool teacher prior to having my, my daughter. When she had the allergies, I called my director and she was like, I don't think this is a good fit for you to bring her with you. And it became the situation where this we were going to have this income, this opportunity, and then it disappeared. Because if I couldn't bring my daughter, then I couldn't go either. And child care, as you know, is, is a very high cost here in the States. It's one of those things that hits families and can make it really difficult. And so when you have a child that has any type of special needs, where it can be difficult or they need additional care. There's not only the potential loss of income, but there's just a loss of opportunity because you can't go into the marketplace and earn income. So basically, I I was a stay-at-home mom (laughs) and making it work, balancing the budget, no extra frills. I I remember the first time I went to the grocery store after she was diagnosed and clearing out my cabinet and trying to set the new normal. And here in Kansas City, just to give you reference, a gallon of milk in Kansas City is roughly $4. And when you look at the cost of an alternative milk, you're looking at a range of somewhere between seven, eight, even $15 per gallon. And so the alternative milks are not sold per gallon, they're sold in the quart size. But when you add up the cost of a quart, that's roughly what you're paying. So if a family was having difficulty affording $4, how then do they absorb the cost of $15 a gallon? Which that's what we were paying. My daughter was drinking hemp milk uh, when she was not you know, breastfeeding. And that's very difficult for a middle income family to absorb. And it's impossible for a low income family to absorb. We were doing all we could, making difficult choices. And then my mother died that April. And the only reason I say that is because we lost familiar support. And I think it's important for listeners to understand how a family can slide from being okay to not okay. There's generally a number of factors going on. And sometimes people think, well, where's where's their family? Well, sometimes people don't have familiar support. There isn't anyone that can help them back on their feet. And so we found out we were expecting our second child that summer. (laughs) Surprise, grief, baby. (laughs) And so we found out we're expecting my second daughter. Her middle name is Joy. And she did. She's just brought so much joy into our life. But we were terrified initially, like, how are we going to feed another mouth? And so my husband, who's the social worker who had been working for the state, hadn't had a raise in six years. He was like, I think we're going to just have to humble ourselves and, you know, ask for help. He said, I know you don't want to do this, but I tell clients to do this all the time. You're pregnant now, so you're going to qualify for WIC. So enroll in WIC. I had no reference of what WIC was. I mean, you know, I was fortunate that my husband was a social worker. Like he knew how to navigate these systems and just even applying for assistance in the Kansas City area, which is a an area where the city is kind of split between two states. So actually, I live in Kansas. My office is in Missouri. 
the state of Kansas application for food assistance, medical assistance, all of those is 26 pages. The application in Missouri is 14. Why are they so different? These are federal dollars, federal programs that come down through states to manage. And so states can set, you know, their own requirements and additional standards. The app, I mean, the application process is daunting. And so I, I count myself, like, I want people to remember when they hear my story, that there's also a lot of privilege in my story, right? Married to a social worker (laughs) can easily navigate the system. (laughs) I just want to make that clear because there's so many others that don't have the privilege that even I have and are just trying to make it. So when you hear this, I want listeners to understand the complexity and just the challenges and the barriers, the systemic barriers that many patients are, are navigating just to find access to safe food, which let me remind you, when you have a condition like food allergy or you're managing atopic disease and the treatment is food avoidance, well, then access to the food is the treatment. So this is a medical need that is not being met. I just want to define that now. So then I enrolled in WIC and I always tell people I'm extremely grateful for the program. It has been proven scientifically to reduce or improve health outcomes and reduce costs for pregnant women and improve the nutrition value and content of young children. So it's a very successful program. It's like one of the most successful public health nutrition programs that this country has. Can you quickly define what WIC is for those who don't know? Yeah, of course. So WIC is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program for Women, Infants, and Children. So it serves pregnant and postpartum women up to one year postpartum. And then infants up to age five. There was a a movement uh, like a year or so ago to make that cut off to correlate with starting school because there are some kids that fall in the gap of they get WIC, but then they turn five before they go to kindergarten. And so then they're in the gap. They don't have WIC. They don't have school lunch program. So they're just stuck. But that hasn't been approved. So I enrolled in WIC, and to my surprise, the foods that we needed were not available. WIC provides supplemental nutrition assistance, so it's not all of the food that families need. And it is based, the program is based on these public health nutrients of concern. So these are nutrient, micronutrients that many uh, who are, you know, at risk are not receiving adequately in their diet. So they're looking at supplementing that in their diet. And I I make that distinction because the way that they do substitution in the program, they're looking at making the substitution based on the micronutrient, not necessarily the functionality or diversity in the diet. It's a a complicated program, (laughs) happens to be the most complicated of all the federal nutrition programs. It's not considered an entitlement. And it only basically has the funding that Congress appropriates for it, which is different from SNAP, which is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, formerly known as food stamps, which is an entitlement program, meaning if you qualify, 
you, you'll have access to it. That's kind of some of the differences. The other difference between SNAP and WIC is that with SNAP, you can kind of pick all the foods that you want. You just can't have prepared food. The challenge with SNAP for families with food allergy is that it doesn't go as far. Because obviously, if your, your food costs two to four times more, then your benefit isn't going to go as far. And they don't give you any extra dollars because you have a food allergy. And the biggest challenge with WIC is that it's so selective and so restrictive. I mean, it's specific brands of food in specific quantities. While they provide a substitute for uh, milk and soy milk, they don't provide any other substitute other than soy milk. So my daughter was allergic to milk and soy, so she couldn't participate in the milk on the program. Then, you know, they provide peanut butter. So if you have a peanut allergy, you can get an extra can of beans, but beans are already in the program. So our stance at Food Equality Initiative is that substitutes must not only meet the micronutrient of public health concern, but they also have to be functionally similar because what happens is a family that has a limited diet already, you're just removing even more diversity in the diet, which I think puts them at risk in other ways. So there's real challenges to the program. So long story short, I enrolled in this program, realized I couldn't get the help that I needed. I started calling my local office, the state office, the national office, and everyone just said, well, you just need to go to a food bank. And I had never gone to a food bank. So I called my local food bank. And at the time, they didn't have a USDA clean room. And they were like, we're opening big bags of flour here open air. We don't recommend you come here, but maybe go to a local pantry. There might be something. So I went to a local pantry, stood in line for hours and watched people roll out with carts of food. Very humbling experience. And when I got into shop, there were only two potatoes and a jar of salsa, the only safe foods. Everything else had wheat in it or dairy in it or peanut. I mean, I kid you not, like the only cereals left were some peanut butter Captain Crunch. I mean, just, you know, we couldn't eat it. And so I remember asking the pantry manager if they ever got any non-dairy milk or any gluten-free items. And I, you know, she looked at me and said, well, you got something, didn't you? And I was just, you know, devastated, heartbroken. Here I was, a mother, just trying to feed my family, trying to find safe food that was medically necessary. This, again, was a medical need. I knew that something had to happen, something had to change, that we couldn't be the only family managing this. And I just knew we weren't. I just knew people weren't talking about it. Nobody was talking about this. And so I started Food Equality Initiative because I didn't want any other parents to feel the hopelessness, to know how difficult it was to navigate, to find safe food. And as I mentioned in my letter, you know, I did, I didn't just start an organization. I at first reached out to, to other organizations to see if there was any support and there was no support. And so again, it was like, here's this medical need that no one's talking about in our community. You know, families can't 
find safe meals today. They don't know where their next safe meal is coming from. And we're so focused on OIT. I'm all for a cure. I want, I no, I don't want my children to live forever with food allergy either, but there's such a wide disparity in access to care, access to treatment and access to basic necessities for management. Yeah, there's no support around living with allergies in these communities. It seems like it's more looking outwards to getting a cure or the very beginning of a diagnosis. Here's some paperwork on what it means to have a food allergy, but not what it means to live with a food allergy and manage it every single day of your life. Right. And I think, um, as I was telling you, Emily, before we started our recorded conversation was that as a physician, I'd never heard of your initiative. And I know that physicians can refer patients to your organization. And so I think even just that knowledge is somehow, it's just hard to kind of connect all of the wonderful organizations and then the people that need to know about them. And that's also a reason that we really wanted to have you on today is just to not not only share your story and provide information, but to kind of, yeah, bring it out to everybody. And so can you talk more about how people get referred to your program for everyone that's listening? Yeah. So our program is prescribed. So initially, you know, we opened what we called a pantry within a pantry and we requested a letter from your doctor while people were then bringing in their lab test results. And I was like, can't have that. So we started a medical advisory board and their first goal was to create a prescription referral process. So we require all clients to have a completed RX diet order form, which basically just confirms that you have a diagnosis that you're managing one of these conditions and that what foods you're avoiding so that we can make sure that you don't get anything that could potentially make you sick. We operated in that pantry within a pantry model for the first five and a quarter years of our existence. And recently we've moved to a direct to door model. You know, we were actually planning a move to direct to door prior to COVID, but COVID gave us the opportunity to basically do a test pilot of it. What we found was an enormous success. Our utilization went up 240%. And this is not just because of COVID in the great need, but it's because it's a model that works for our clients. It puts them at the center, you know, because transportation is always a barrier to, to services. And so this puts it right at their door and they're able to select the foods that they want and that they need and that are, and they adhere to their prescribed diet. And so we only have two qualifications for service. Again, that's that RX diet order form that needs to be completed. And that is available on our website, as well as income guidelines at 250% of federal poverty level. So for a family of four, that's roughly $64,000 a year. Are you nationwide? So we traditionally, our services have been in Kansas and Missouri. And we continue to see requests all from coming all over the nation. And we are positioned logistically to serve patients all across the nation. The only challenge we have is 
basically financial support for us to scale nationwide. We are actively looking at moving into markets like New York, Baltimore, Atlanta, Chicago, and Houston. Those are areas we want to be in. And with funding, we could be nationwide in two weeks because we already have all the protocols. It's already set. It's a funding issue. Do you have a certain amount that you need for each city? Yeah. So we haven't looked at it necessarily per city, but to scale to this, all the cities that I just named, we were looking at, we need to raise over the next five years, 30 million. I mean, it's, it's a significant cost. And I will say that one of our goals, you know, we've, we started an advocacy working to amend the WIC food packages. That's actually what we did first. You know, we worked to make to amend the WIC food packages. And quickly I realized like that could take 20, 30 years because they only review the food packages every 10 years. And so when we started, we were right at the beginning of a review and we did get a small win. So they acknowledged there was no substitute for fish and no substitute for egg in the package. Of course, they didn't want to substitute it with what we suggested, but we're still working on that. That's a priority for us policy-wise, but that's also why we shifted to direct services because we felt by providing direct services, we could not only provide relief to families today, but then we'd have this wonderful opportunity for data and for research, right? Because there's just not enough research in this area. You know, Dr. Gupta's team at Northwestern is doing a lot of work and I've seen some others, I believe in Houston, Carla Davis, has done some work. There's a researcher out of Arkansas that's done some work in this space, but there's not enough. And we strongly feel that because this is a medical need and with all of the work around the social determinants of health, that this should be covered benefit. And so that is our long-term strategy. We want to change federal nutrition programs. We want to make access in the emergency food system, meaning food banks and pantries accessible. But ultimately, we believe it should be covered by insurance the same way that it's covering your epinephrine or that it's going to cover the palforzia for OIT, that there should be coverage for the support that families need to adhere to food avoidance, because food avoidance is the treatment. And so what does it mean to practice food avoidance? Mm -hmm. And there is not necessarily a model for this in the US, but in Europe, there are models for this in celiac disease. If you have a diagnosis of celiac disease and you live in Europe, chances are you either go directly to the pharmacy and you receive your bread product, your pastas and all your cereals, or you receive a benefit, a certain amount of funds every month to purchase food from a, a set list. And we feel this is the same. And there's a lot of work here in the U.S. around food, healthy food access in terms of diet related disease, so heart disease, diabetes, and stage renal failure. But there's not been enough research on what we term in our office diet-treated illness. So illness like food allergy, celiac disease, eosinophilic esophagitis, right? Diseases that are not caused by poor diet, but diseases that are primarily treated by diet. Because up until a couple of months ago, there was no FDA approved treatment for food allergy. 
And the way that you manage it, the way that it's treated is by having access to the right foods at the right time, understanding you know, how to read a food label, cross-contamination, all of those things, and having the support. And that's exactly what we provide for our clients. They come to us, they get access to supplemental nutrition assistance. We provide support. If they don't know how to read a food label, we help them learn to read a food label. If they don't have a 504 and they need one and they need assistance, we walk them through that. So doing a little bit of case management to all of the things that can't happen in the clinic that really are more effective in a community setting, we're providing for them. And that such should be covered by insurance. So that's Mm -hmm. really our long-term goal. Do you know of any other organizations that are doing anything similar to what you're doing? So I'd say we were the first in the nation to address this issue. There have been a couple of other organizations, one in Baltimore, one in Philly. There's another one in Pennsylvania, but they're doing similar work in that they were raising funds or either holding food drives to stock pantries, but none of them are really looking at it through a public health lens. They don't require an RX diet order form. They're all still all volunteer tier organizations. We're the only organization that has any level of dedicated staff, and that's really positioned to, to move forward. And I think Part of that, I think, is part of this conversation, right, that we we don't have enough in our community. When we think about the type of funding it takes to provide these services, to close the gap on disparities in food allergy, those are economic disparities, those are racial disparities, it's going to take intentional action, it's going to take funding You know, when you think about asthma, and we still have wide disparities in asthma, and we we have not done enough for asthma, but there has at least been some effort in asthma, right? There has been no national program to address disparities in food allergy. There have been zero. All of the funding has been allocated to, to trying to find the cure. And don't get me wrong, I understand how much research costs. I understand the enormous need there. But we cannot put all of the dollars toward tracing the end goal and not any effort toward trying to close disparities because people have to live today. People are suffering enormously today. And I personally think part of the asthma disparity issue is also related to food allergy. So one of our partnerships here in Kansas City, we work very closely with Head Start. Head Start, their number one health concern in our community is asthma. And number two is food allergy, with many of the students having both asthma and food allergy. And when I talk with the head of their health services um, section, she basically said, you know, we're providing safe meals here at the school. But then they go home and they get a hold of something that they're not supposed to have or the or wick is giving them peanut butter and milk, things that they're not supposed to have. And then they eat it. They have a reaction. It triggers their asthma and they're in the hospital. Not not just a few hours. They're they're there a day or two and they're missing school. I mean, that's why she said it was so important for us to partner with them because it was such an issue. So if. If asthma is number one and food allergy is number two, 
with many of the students having both, yet we're putting, we do have some programs to address environmental triggers for asthma, but we don't have any programs to address food triggers or to help people mitigate their risk to food triggers. Absolutely. Can we talk a little bit about how many kids are in your program currently? What are the statistics? Currently, we're serving roughly 155 families and, you know, mostly children. Our two largest referral partners are our local children's hospital and then Safety Net Hospital. I mean, the two academic centers in our community, that's where the majority of our referrals are coming from. We also receive referrals from community providers, but I'd say we're serving slightly more children, mainly because we've got some really super docs that are, you know, understand the value of this program and they refer all their patients. And one of the challenges that we've had is, you know, we've we've been such champions for, you know, the hunger-free healthcare movement and and understanding the role of social determinants of health and a lot of that has been in primary care, which rightfully so it should be because that's the medical home and that's where you're going to have more interaction, but there has not been enough conversation around how this impacts again diseases such as as food allergy and you know trying to get providers to screen for food insecurity so that you can even know if your client or your patient needs these resources there's been a lot of effort to get to this point and we know that we could be serving way more but again part of it is funding you know, we're serving about what we have funding for. I mean, we're grossly underfunded. And I can't say that enough because if people want there to be options, we have to start allocating resources to these needs. I think I, at the beginning of COVID-19, I posted an alarming statistic that there are only, you know, there are 60,000 food pantries in the U.S., but there are only four dedicated to serving people with food allergy. And that doesn't mean that you can't walk into a food pantry and find a non-dairy substitute or a, you know, a loaf of gluten-free bread here or there. But what it means is that there are only four organizations that are actively procuring these foods that have set aside dollars to make sure it's consistently there, that it's not some random, oh, we have this one shelf of items that we pulled out. It's not even just the food itself, but it's having the policies to ensure that it gets to the people who need it. Because like my experience at the pantry, you know, when I saw carts rolling out, there were some safe cereals that I saw people received. But they have no way to to get it to somebody who can't eat anything else, which is, again, why I truly say this is an unmet medical need and should be addressed as such. Absolutely. And then lastly, I'd, I'd really love for you to talk about the ways that people can get involved in volunteering with your organization. Are there ways to remotely get involved, like me from New York or, you know, Courtney from Germany, all the ways that people can get involved? Yes, there are many ways to get involved. So we just released, I believe yesterday, we're starting a teen advisory board because we've had lots of young people, particularly during COVID, who have become very passionate about this issue and have been doing things on their own. And we wanted to kind of harness that that energy and give them opportunities to really grow in this area of interest and to support their communities. And so we do have a teen advisory board that we are starting. Applications are up now. 
Uh, and so we're accepting teens and college students, high school and college students for that teen advisory board. We also are always looking for kind of what I called just champions and, and ambassadors. So people who, you know, like yourself, Courtney, who may have a blog, who can be a voice for this issue, who can raise awareness of this issue uh, within their own network. So there's definitely opportunities to connect with us and support us in that way. We also, you know, we have individuals that volunteer for us remotely that help us contact companies and do outreach for us. There's a number of activities that keep this operation running and we are still a small staff. We rely heavily on volunteers and interns. We do have Every year we accept interns, university students from a variety of sections, whether they're health sciences students. We are a community rotation for the dietetics program uh, connected to one of the universities here. So we have dietetic students that rotate in our community, which we think is important because a lot of people don't understand not all dietitians are trained in food allergy or have that background. So we want to kind of do our part to to help grow the field. And, you know, we think dietitians are just immensely critical. think that they're an undervalued, underutilized professional group in the food allergy space. And I think they're critical. I mean, I shared with you my personal story. My child was diagnosed with multiple food allergies in primary care, and we did not receive a referral for nutrition services. And so... You know, when you're removing so many things, you want to not just replace substitutes, but you want to make sure that you're not missing anything critical, especially with kids who are growing and developing at such a critical stage. So I think dietitians are are important (laughs) and don't get enough credit. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, we're just the other way to help us is, you know, financially any gift. It's not too small, especially if you can say give us $5 a month, just a regular donation, a monthly gift, just like your NPR station or your public television station. Um, That helps us really build a budget. It helps us really consistently know that we're going to have funds to serve families the next month. And $5 will help us provide three meals for a family with food allergies. So we'll be able to stretch those dollars and it'll go much further than if you had purchased an item at the store and donated it. So those are all ways to get involved, participate in our education opportunities that are coming up. We are having the conversation on race and food allergy. We are planning to have a couple other conversations in that series. So, you know, we just encourage people to get involved, to talk about these issues. Amazing. Thank you. This was so informative and helpful. And I hope we have a lot of people that get plugged in with you and start volunteering and just being more active in all of these discussions that we all need to be having. Yeah. Thank you for really pushing this and opening up more opportunities for people to see how there are food insecurities. And especially, I loved how you called it a diet-treated illness. And when we see it in that light, it really makes people understand why it's important for those with food allergies to have access to safe foods. I definitely agree. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that all information you hear today is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. And also don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a second, help spread the word by rating our podcast and sharing with your friends and family who might also be interested in learning more about allergies, asthma, and immunology. You can always stay up to date by checking out our Instagram, The Itch Podcast, where you can leave questions you are itching to know, or check out our website, which is www.itchpodcast.com, which contains more information about the subjects we covered in today's episode and every episode. Until next time, have a fabulous week.